Good afternoon, this is Resonance 104.4 FM and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key. I got a letter from um, one of the cast members of Lost who doesn't wish to be identified further uh, and the letter is as follows. Dear Mr Key, I'm a keen listener to your radio show on Resonance FM and I couldn't help noticing that for the past two weeks You've been talking about birds to the exclusion of virtually all other topics. A fortnight ago, you regaled listeners with a catalogue of 53 birds. And this week, or last week in fact, you devoted your entire allotment of half an hour to the recitation of a list of over 600 birds. Are you a top ornithologist, or are you trying to pull the wool over our eyes by pretending knowledge where there is only a stagnant pond of ignorance? Well, in all fairness, um, the list that I read out last week was a list of five film directors, two jazzmen, one astronomer, one newsreader, Brent Sadler, 34 stars of, stars of stage, screen and television, and 601 birds. There ought to have been 602 birds, but one was inadvertently duplicated. But in any case, it's always nice to receive letters from the cast members of Lost, even when, as here, there seems to be an inference that I don't know what I'm talking about. And I have to say that this is not the first time my ornithological credentials have been called into question. It's an accusation that I'm getting used to, sadly. Many writers of an avian bent would throw in the towel if they faced this sort of needling day in, day out, but I'm a man of almost saintly forbearance, and I shrug off such pinpricks, especially, it has to be said, when they come from people who spend their time pretending to be members of a frankly unbelievable fictional rock and roll band called something like Crankshaft, and whose guitar strumming is tuneless and vapid. Perhaps I can end the malicious gossip once and for all by summarising my ornithological experience. My first paid job after leaving school, it was still called a school in those days rather than a community education hub, was as a filing clerk for the Pointy Town Seabird Rescue Service. Pointy Town is, of course, a long, long way from the sea, so during my three exciting years there, only a handful of seabird rescues took place. I remember, oh, vividly, vividly, a guillemot that became entangled in many bright crepe paper ribbons and was set free by judicious snipping with a pair of embroidery scissors. Incidentally, speaking of guillemots, I certainly know more about them than the writer for The Guardian who seems unaware that they're a type of bird. He wrote a review of a, uh, an album by the band called Guillemots and wondered if it was pronounced Gimo. Um, does The Guardian employ anyone over the age of 12 these days? Anyway, as a filing clerk I became familiar with all sorts of seabirds, not just guillemots. Terns, orcs, skewers, kittiwakes and hundreds of different types of gulls came within my purview. Then, I'm ashamed to say, I fell in with a low crowd and rapidly became a denizen of the underworld. Luckily, this did not put a stop to my ornithological education, as I became involved in a numbers racket. 
Eh? you ask. Isn't that a non sequitur? Well, it would be, of course, except that the numbers in our numbers racket were based on bird populations. Every morning I was bidden to go out and about counting starlings, wrens, linnets and what have you, thus arriving at that day's numbers for the racket. After a brush with some very tough coppers, I decided to go straight. I applied for a job as personal chef to Peter Maxwell Davis, the eminent composer, thinking that this would provide me with an opportunity to find out all about swans, including how to cook them, but he turned me down in favour of some uppity kitchen person who is now a famous television personality. I mooched about idly for a while and then enrolled on a course of bird recognition skills at the Van Dongle Brack School of Bird-Related Studies in Tantarabim. To meet the tutorial fees and supplement my income, I worked at nights for a company that carried out owl investigations, thus extending my knowledge to birds of prey. It was around this time too that I had a number of singular encounters with cassowaries. I passed the Van Dongelbrack course with distinction, umpteen gold stars and a badge with a profile view of a trumpeter swan in silhouette, and thus secured a position as assistant bird counting person at the newly established Haemoglobin Towers Bird Counting Institute, generously funded with a grant from Yoko Ono. One Thursday morning, we learned that the senior bird-counting person had been pushed by an unknown malefactor into the path of an out-of-control pneumatic railway train. So by Thursday afternoon, I was installed in his place and given his talismanic feather and bird-bone necklace. Subsequent investigations by the very same tough coppers who had once pummeled me under a spotlight in an underground cellar failed to prove that I was the unknown malefactor, thank heaven. A couple of weeks later, the gubernatorial board of the Institute recommended that my job title be changed to uber-omniscient bird chieftain. The bleached skull of a vulture was added to my talismanic necklace. I was given a personal hen whose clucks warned me of the approach of unauthorised visitors to my palatial suite of offices at the pinnacle of haemoglobin towers. My binoculars are encrusted with gemstones. Tiny hummingbirds peck grains of wheat from my hand. A booby nests in my tremendous bouffon. Soon I will become indistinguishable from the ancient Egyptian bird god Horus, and thou shalt bow down, thou shalt bow down before me, and thou shalt tremble. Haggard, wizened old man, impossibly ancient, creaks across the stage, barely able to support himself on his battered crutches, which give off a powerful stench of linseed oil and dubbin. 
One of his eyes is dull, even dead. The other gleams with ferocity. The lights dim and he crumples to the floor. Curtain. This is, of course, the end of I Was Puny Verking Getterix, a play forever associated with the great child method actor Tad Wensleydale. Some still find it hard to credit that a tiny tot of six could be so convincing as the 140-year-old anti-hero. But whatever happened to Tad Wensleydale? Did he, like so many child actors, succumb to booze and pills before taking up an important post in the diplomatic service or the United Nations? Did he attempt to revitalise his acting career later in life by accepting cameo roles in witless films? Did he get a ghost to write a confessional autobiography freighted with implausible scenes of childhood misery? Tad did none of these things. It's well known that he retired from stage and screen at the age of nine after his barnstorming appearance as the demi-mondane flapper in The Barn in the Storm, an award-winning drama about an old barn reduced to matchwood after being engulfed by a violent storm. As he took his umpteenth curtain call, the diminutive thespian announced that he would never appear in public again and swept melodramatically off the stage. And indeed, it was as if he had vanished forevermore, as days turned to weeks, turned to years, with not a jot of news of the mighty stage might, so inevitably did speculative stories begin to circulate. It was said that Tad had become a full-time Buzz Aldrin impersonator in a scheme cooked up by the astronaut himself, a rumour regularly scotched by Aldrin, who socked more than one inquiring busybody on the jaw. Another tale had Tad grown mad and bad, filleting his foes with a shiv in a dive, a master of disguise with murderous eyes and mustard breath. Some said he'd fallen in with goblins and lived among them as their king in a sort of goblin pod, now underground, now high in the sky. But this was clearly codswallop. The truth was more prosaic. Tad changed his name to Gussie Ditch, opened a pie shop in Pang Hill and lived out the rest of his days baking and selling Pang Hill pies to the pie-eating people of Pang Hill. It was an un un unremarkable and irreproachable life, banal even, a life filled with pies and pie fillings. Tad, or Gussie, rarely alluded to the meteor that was those first nine years, an infant actorly glory, comparable only to the career of William Betty, the young Roseus, whose grave in Highgate Cemetery is now sadly overgrown. Tad Wensleydale's own tomb, on which a solitary chaffinch is always perched, is, as he wished, a baroque excrescence in questionable taste, in the words of his own last will and testament, a remarkable document baked in, a paste, baked in pastry letters filled with raspberry jam and lemon curd and put into a pie. 
two notes on that. William Betty, 1791-1874, the proto-tad. Of him it was said, He is not yet mature, but matchless. A British tragedian with feeling and propriety, he astonishes the judicious observers of human nature. And Tad Wensleydale appears to have stolen the name Gussie Ditch from a woman who's buried in Kensal Green Cemetery. This is a story called The Thing. It was blue, it rotated, and it smelled of birds. The blue was cerulean, the rotation was slow and juddery. It was a general sort of bird smell. One could not with any certainty say ostrich or guillemot, much as one might wish to. That slow, juddery rotation was accompanied by a very faint clanking noise, so faint that a passer-by, huffing and puffing up the hill, might think he imagined it, as he reached the top, put down his bag and lit his pipe, perplexity furrowing his forehead as he puffed on the savagely bitter, cheap Serbian tobacco, the flesh around his piggy eyes crinkling. If moles or other burrowing creatures had created a temporary tussock on the hilltop, the passerby might sit on it a while to rest his legs, perhaps take off his big boots and socks, and pick in a desultory way at the sock wall before examining his feet with greater diligence. Flesh the colour of bean curd, little red sores on his toes, but his eyes would be drawn to that cerulean blue and he would forget his feet. His socks were blue too, but that was just a coincidence. His boots were dappled and done, like a cow's colouring might be, in a land where there were cows to be seen, unlike this land. If fog came down and swirled about our passerby, he would be reluctant to move. With his piggy-eyed vision occluded, that clanking noise would seem less faint as his hearing grew sharper. Perhaps, too, once he had tapped out his pipe on a stone and the last wisps of the acrid Serbian smoke dispersed, he would become aware of the smell of birds, where there were no birds' nests. At the bottom of the hill there is a sordid tavern where miscreants and ne'er-do-wells plot acts of the utmost fiendishness and cackle as they do so. The tavern's walls are trimmed with gimp passmentary. It is Shrove Tuesday, so pancakes are being served. Unfortunately, the pancakes have been made with contaminated flour, and in days to come, this scene will be referred to as the mass-poisoning horror of Cackpod. 
Cacpod being the name of the village at the bottom of the hill, or one of its names, for it, for it has others in other tongues, this being a country of ten different languages, some of them spoken by only a smattering of citizens, and that smattering in its collective dotage. Our traveller with his foul pipe tobacco is not in his dotage, and he crashes excitedly through the tavern door, having scurried down the hillside at the first hint of the fog lifting. There is something in his manner that suggests he is unused to the company of ruffians. There is a throbbing in his pituitary gland and beads of sweat upon his brow. He has, of course, put back on his socks and boots and tucked his pipe into the breast pocket of his Austrian postal service jacket. Standing at the bar of this repulsive tavern, he asks the landlady for a refreshing minty pottage with foam on top. He is thinking about cerulean blue, juddery rotation and the smell of birds, and in his frazzled mind he is swept back to that day years and years ago when he danced a fandangoid hoocha with a floozy who wore a cerulean blue frock and span around like a wild thing as she danced, and though she did not smell of birds, she had something of the look of a crow, bright black eyes and a corvine nose, and yes, her hat was made of feathers, was it not? The ne'er-do-wells ignore the newcomer, for they're too busy gobbling down the poisoned pancakes, which, within hours, will find them writhing and groaning in the sawdust of the tavern floor. Emboldened by the first few sips of his foamy potation, however, the traveller asks the landlady, I say... What is that thing on top of yon hill, that blue rotating thing that clanks and smells of birds? <clears throat> His voice is loud and resounds in the stifling fug of the tavern, and there is a sudden silence. The landlady busies herself, pointedly polishing a tankard with a rag. Every single rapscallion stops chewing on his pancake. A dog that had been curled asleep at the foot of the pianola gets to its feet and pads slowly out of sight into a dark back room. The clock above the bar stops ticking. All is still and silent and heavy with menace. Eventually, it seems as if hours have passed, the ancient dog reappears and lies down in the doorway. The sounds of chewing and munching and clinking tankards start up again. The landlady flings her rag onto the floor and dishes up more plates piled with pancakes. Queasily aware that he has said something untoward, the traveller slurps down his pottage and takes his leave, edging past the sleeping hound. He does not know that within hours all the pancake eaters will be dead and gone, that the dog is tormented by nightmares, that the tavern will be condemned and fall to ruin. He steps outside. The sky is black. He peers with piggy eyes up to the top of the hill, but the blue rotating thing that smells of birds is engulfed in darkness and no longer visible. He turns to trudge towards Cackpod railway station. The image of that floozy flickers before him, 
and now he remembers how she winched him onto a ship from the rock where he had been abandoned for 40 days, and how they danced and danced the tarantella, and how her frock was blue, and how she span, and how as midnight struck on the tavern clock, she turned into a crow. Regular listeners will have gathered that the bulk of the prose in Hooting Yard is the result of many, many hours of painstaking research. A few weeks ago I read a story called Pipistrel Persuivant, for example, and before I wrote that I needed to know a lot more about heraldic bats than I did when I woke up that morning. Indeed, I had much to learn about bats, and even more about heraldry. So, to find out about heraldry... One of my sources was a book entitled Pimbley's Dictionary of Heraldry. And I must say that having read it in full, it's the very model of what a dictionary can be. Seldom have I found such a rigorous approach to the act of definition. The definitions in Pimbley's are clear, succinct and remarkable. Take this as just one example. There you are, thumbing through your heraldic dictionary, wanting perhaps even needing, to know what is meant by the phrase Bari, Bendy, Dexter and Sinister. Pimbley defines it as a combination of Bari and Bendy, Dexter and Sinister. Isn't that perfect? You close the book, thump your fist on your escritoire and furrow your brow, older and wiser than you were but a minute ago. You want to know what Bari, Bendy, Dexter and Sinister means? It means a combination of Bari and Bendy, Dexter and Sinister. When I was young, and they packed me off to school, and they taught me how to begin prose pieces with quotations from Jethro Tull songs, I came under the spell of a remarkable docent. He was a shriveled, partly collapsed person with hair the colour of a gorgeous sunset over the Serengeti. I think he used dye. And his bloodless lips were always puckered. He wore ill-fitting suits woven from the wool of rare goats, eschewed spectacles in favour of some floor-mounted light-reflecting contraption of many mirrors and lenses, and he never varied in his lunchtime preferences, which were pie-related and frankly unspeakable. Sometimes he sported a moustache. Sometimes, when his duty was to clang bells, he clanged bells with a vigour which belied his frail health. For this docent was in fact clinging to life by a straw, had we but known it. 
He was the finest teacher I ever had, and yet I never understood a word he said, for he had a jarring speech impediment. A fuse in his head had snapped, I think, so that somewhere between his brain and his mouth, perfectly sensible words were turned into gibberish. Gnar, snud, poot, horbungo, he might say, or nerg, ga, pipit, 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 crum, tum, tum, for example. Sometimes it was as if he was reciting a list of monstrous beings from the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Glub, 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 he would mutter. Azathoth, Nyalothep, Shogoth, Asanath, wait. If he entered the classroom with a sickly pallor, you could almost guarantee that the only sound to issue forth would be a low, growled, monotonous... Goon-hoon, goon-hoon, goon-hoon. It was never entirely clear to me whether the docent realised that when he thought he was saying let us now examine in formidable detail the film career of Hedy Lamar, what his listeners heard was Durgon, podcast, gummo-gummo, fanag. In a sense, it doesn't matter. What made him such a superb educator were the diagrams he would chalk on the blackboard as he gibbered. Majestic, sweeping concatenations of lines and arcs and shapes and colours and arrows and letters and numbers and boxes and circles and triangles and cross-hatching and dots and dashes and angles and planes and squiggles and Tony Buzanities. Fearsomely complicated, yet at the same time explaining every last spark of human thought to a room full of tinies like myself. What a wonder he was. He only taught at the school for a week and then he was gone. It was said by some that he was poached by the Hungarian football club Honved, where he wielded the magic sponge and taught legendary striker Ferenc Pushkas everything he knew. Others claimed that the docent, like Sherlock Holmes, devoted his final years to beekeeping. As for me, whenever I look at the Zapruder footage, there seems to be something very, very familiar about Umbrella Man. And by the way, um, the quotation from the Jethro Tull song with which that piece opened, When I was young and they packed me off to school and they taught me dot 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 is of course from um, Wind Up which appears on Aqualung words and music by the noted fish farm proprietor Ian Anderson
And I thought I'd bring um, this week's show to an end with a couple of quotations from other writers. For the first one, I have my old mucker, Max Deshaunay, to thank, who sent me this splendid quotation from The History of England and Great Britain by one Professor Michael John. Um, I think this is late 19th century or very early 20th century, but I think it's late 19th century, where he writes, Charles II smilingly remarked that it must surely have been his own fault that he did not come back sooner, for he saw no one who did not protest that he had always longed for his return. One Dobson, a miller at Charlton in Kent, burnt his windmill as a bonfire for joy. Very sensible way of celebrating, I think, burning your windmill. Um, Makes you wonder what Dobson did for a living afterwards. And um, another quote from Spying in Guru Land by William Shaw, which is an amusing book about um, various cults and sects and things in Britain, where he writes about Sir George King. Sometimes the communications came from a Martian bearing the rank Mars Sector 6. In a tremulous, deep voice, Sir George would relay these fantastical messages from outer space. He advised against sitting with your back to the engine whilst on train journeys. In his predictions for 1956, he warned of the danger of hurricanes, but added that it was possibly going to be an excellent season for wool. I think that's precisely the kind of information that we would expect from Martians, isn't it? Telling us the best way to sit on train journeys and when wool would be um, excellent or otherwise. And that's the end of Hooting Yard on the air for this week. I do hope you found it educating, educative, educative I think is the word, and enjoyable. And um, I'll be back next week. Bye bye.